Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by our fantastic patrons. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex to learn more. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Chris Rainbow Sparkle Stevens. How's it going, Chris? Uh, it's going good, Spanners. How are you? Look, we've got a really special guest this week, so just don't be terrible, okay? <laughs> I, I will do my best. No, I said don't be terrible. Oh, well, that was just low. We are an independent podcast hosted by MissedApexPodcast.com. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. Today, we are joined by a man who has spent decades in F1, working for Jordan, Jaguar, Red Bull, and then as the head of Cosworth, now best known for punditry on every F1 outlet ever, including now, <laughs> Missed Apex Podcast. Welcome, Mark Gallagher. Welcome to the podcasting shed. Yeah, pleasure to be here, Spanish. Great to be part of this evening and looking forward to it. Now, I found a quote from you online oh, when you were in charge okay. of Cosworth. And yeah, and oh dear, I was quite surprised. It, it, it was you saying, in F1, it's not enough to achieve success. You have to ensure that the competition fails too. I mean, that's pretty sinister, Mark. You seem so nice. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, competi- the competition in F1 is so, um, you know, it, it's so strong. And when I say you kind of have to see the competition fail, you, you want to do everything you can to win. And, uh, you know, I, that, I'm not suggesting for one second you go out and sabotage what they're doing, but you want to just do everything you can. I mean, that's that, I think the, the, the competitive nature of the sport is what, is so is so exciting when you're involved in the, the sort of the, the leading edge of it, really. Now, Mark, tell me a little bit about yourself, because, I mean, personally, I've known you as a media personality from BBC yeah. Sky appearances. And I followed you yeah. on Twitter because yeah. you have a sort of warm, upfront style. And unlike young baby journalists like Chris <laughs> Stevens, you're quite happy to give your opinion. If you think something, you say it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, the social media side in F1 is, uh, you know, for me, it's, and that for all of us, it's such a fantastic thing these days that we can engage directly with each other and with fans and you can be opinionated. And and I love the debate about absolutely anything in motorsport because it's just it's just fantastic. And yeah, I mean, you know me from what I've been doing in recent years, but like so many uh, people, I came into Formula One, you know, through a number of different sort of uh, more menial jobs, if you like. And uh, I mean, my, I actually spent my first seven years of my career working in the media. And I worked for that great institution in Teddington in South London, Haymarket Publishing uh, at Autosport and, uh, you know, working as a freelancer for them. And, you know, Haymarket was always such, it was actually a fantastic uh, kind of grounding for so many people. We, You were just talking to me earlier about Joe Sayward. Yep. I mean, I think the first time I ever met Joe Sayward was in the offices of Autosport in 1983. So, you know, so like so many people came up that way. But as you, you've rightly summarized, um, I spent a big chunk of my career then at Autosport, uh, sorry, at uh, Jordan. 
and that was a fantastic period and then went from there to very briefly Jaguar but actually which became Red Bull Racing uh, and then my last big executive role was running the engine business at Cosworth which was great fun yeah I mean I actually just didn't realize that your F1 credits was so impressive. I mean, probably because I'm, I'm impossibly young myself. Uh, but it's right to say you came into F1 in the 80s, essentially with the marketing side and, and working for the sponsor. Yeah. So when I came out of, univer- when I came out of university and joined Autosport, I just, to be honest, it was a dream, such a dream job to, and I was working on the advertising side of Autosport. I wasn't a journalist. and uh, But I got I got to know so many people. And, you know, when you're surrounded by at that time, the editor was Quentin Spurring, who was a legend in sports car racing circles. Uh, Formula One editor was Nigel Roebuck, who doesn't need an introduction to anybody who follows Formula One. Uh, Ian Phillips was covering Formula Two uh, at the time. You know, we, there were so many amazing people in autosport in the early 80s. But I very quickly found myself fascinated by the sponsorship side. And I'm not really, really sure why that was. I just found it really interesting to know how do these deals come together? And um, from the mid 80s until sort of I joined Eddie Jordan's team, um, I actually spent five years working with Marlborough um, and with Canon. And Marlborough, of course, was sponsoring McLaren, but um, I did a lot of media work for them in Formula 3000, Formula 3. Vauxhall Lotus, if anyone remembers Vauxhall Lotus. But, you know, the drivers, the lower formula drivers with the Marlboro World Championship team program at that time were people like uh, Alan McNish, Mika Hakkinen, Eddie Irvine. Um, you know, we had JJ Leto. Uh, of course, Marlboro sponsored so many people at that time. And um, it, was a fa- it was fantastic to be part of that program. I worked a little bit with James Hunt, did a number of programs with James Hunt for Marlboro. Um, and then the Canon work was fantastic because Canon were sponsoring Williams. Uh, so that meant going to Grand Prix and and doing work with Nigel Mansell and Ricardo Patrese and people like that. So you know, just it, it, I was in my sort of mid twenties and I really did think I'd died and gone to heaven. I'm working with these legends, um, but the, it was the commercial side that really intrigued me, and that's really what led me to then doing the job that I subsequently did at Jordan and then and then Red Bull. Well, firstly. Yes, we're incredibly jealous of all of that. I'm just trying to imagine, you know, being 20 years old, and I compare it to my 20s, certainly not as glamorous. And uh, and Chris, you know, digging around in the dirt in Formula E would have been very jealous of, of what you did there. It's a running fight we have. Um, but yeah. I have got a sponsor-related question then. I, obviously, things may have changed since the late 80s, but we had Lotus boss Matthew Carter on here admitting to putting on glory runs with Charles Peake and testing, and McLaren have been accused of doing the same. Are sponsors ever really fooled by a team coming out and doing a low-fuel run and bluffing their way to the front of a timesheet? Well, sponsors who don't know anything about a sport can be fooled into believing all kinds of things. So I it mean, works. we. I mean, we we sold the rear wing on the Jordan Formula One car in 1991 to a company called Fujifilm, and they thought the rear wing was going to be enormous because in the artwork we showed them this enormous rear wing, which they thought looked amazing. And then they turned up and saw this low drag, (laughs) tiny wing, and they basically said, what the hell is that? Um, and so, you know, what you sell as sponsor sometimes can be a little bit different from reality and whether you put on a, a fancy performance in testing or uh, whether you sort of hype things up a little bit in the presentation. You know, sometimes there can be a bit of artistic license. But to be honest with you, I would be, you know, pretty I'd be pretty skeptical about anyone pointing the finger at McLaren and saying they're just showboating because, Formula One's a pretty serious business. McLaren need to keep as much credibility as possible. Um, they need to work hard to just be competitive this year. And I don't think that Eric Boulier and the technical team would really take very kindly to the marketing guys saying, we got to run the program to give the sponsors a false sense of how competitive <laughs> we are. McLaren are much more interested in having a real sense of how competitive they are. I, I can sincerely hope that that's true. Chris? I mean, if some of the uh, betting companies end up getting fooled by some of the testing results, i.e. whoever slashed Renault's odds after day one of testing, yeah, then it doesn't really surprise me that you could kind of lure a, a sponsor into with a, with a little bit of false advertisement. Yeah, I think you, you could... It- it's going to be helpful to tell a sponsor that you're doing well in testing and to show them the great performance. But, you know, we're in we're in March 
uh, companies don't sign budgets off in March. Companies who are committed to F1 are already committed to F1 this year. Uh, it's, you know, for 2019, the decisions are going to be made June, July, August, September. I think it's far more important how a team performs in March, April and May this season to prove whether they're worth backing next year rather than showboating uh, in testing. And I think also with testing being so curtailed these days, you know, you get so few days of testing. And, of course, we lost some of that testing with the bad weather in, in Spain. So the opportunity to, to showboat, you know, to be honest, I don't really know why you would do it these days because it's, it's kind of a pointless exercise, especially when everybody can see exactly with the programs that you're running mm. in terms at least of, of tires and drivers and that, even if we don't know how much fuel people have on board. But, you know, the, I, I think it's one of the things about testing is it's it's so easy to look at the times and to point the finger and say, oh, well, we can deduce this. I mean, you can't really deduce anything unless you know exactly what the teams are running. And, of course, none of us know that. Yes, but that doesn't stop us engaging in wild speculation. We of should... course, and doesn't wild speculation keep the social media channels just flying along? It's we wonderful. really should change the name of the show to Wild Speculation Podcast. <laughs> um, Mark, I'm, I'm desperate to ask you about um, working at Jordan, but I also know you've been running a collection uh, for uh, one of your compatriots as well. Yeah, actually, well, it's not me that's running the collection, but it's um, it's. Uh, I just really wanted to mention the fact that for especially for people like myself who've been around for a few years, Henry Hope Frost, uh, he was killed in a tragic accident, tragic motorcycle accident um, last Thursday. He's very well known in racing circles for uh, being sort of the Mr. Interviewer at the Autosport International every January. Also, of course, for the fantastic work that he has done in historic racing, uh, Goodwood Festival of Speed, Goodwood Revival, uh, members meeting. I mean, the guy's a legend. And, it's not too fine a point to say it's probably one of the greatest, you know, it's one of the most sad times for so many people in the motorsport industry in the UK to see Henry taken from his young family so suddenly and so tragically. And there is a, um, there is a, uh, a fund uh, being run on Just Giving. You can find it on Twitter. You only have to enter the hashtag HHF or the hashtag Fever because he always had hashtag Fever at the end of uh, all of his uh, tweets and he embodied for me the purity of the passion that we all have for motorsport but somehow he managed to communicate it in an almost sort of childlike uh, manner and he was an extremely entertaining guy to spend any time with so uh, for any of the people out there who, who fancy donating something i think you know please go ahead and 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 help out his family because he is a freelancer and yeah. obviously the family will benefit from that the other thing which is you know if you want to be um uh, if you want to be a bit ruthless about supporting the fund is i understand there are moves afoot to have an auction for uh memorabilia from uh from racing to help raise funds and i know i've got a few things in my garage which i will be throwing into the memorabilia uh auction as and when it happens because the great thing about working with racing teams over the years is you end up with a drawer full of stuff signed oh. by takuma sato and uh you think well he'll never achieve anything and then of course he goes and wins the indy 500 uh, and yarno truly and damon hill and heinz harold frenson and all these people i've worked with over the years so um yeah our thoughts are with henry hope frost and his family and the real tragedy that happened last week. Yeah, and I think that is the key point that you miss. You think of him as a, a famous or a well-known personality, but being freelance and having a young family does does mean that you know those people are now very vulnerable despite how popular their um, husband and father was. And certainly as a father of young children myself, it is something yeah. that keeps me up at night at times. And you think, if, every, if everything goes wrong, if I disappear, you know, what happens to my family that has relied on me? So it's justgiving.com uh, and search for uh, Henry Hope Frost. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. I appreciate you letting me have a few words about him because it is important. No, it's fantastic. As long as you don't mind me now sucking you dry for information yeah. because one of the most fascinating people on Formula One now is someone we know as uh, an old pundit, Eddie Jordan. Of course, a lot of people... Now, some of the kids, like Chris here, won't realise that he was, of course, a Formula One boss in the 90s. Uh, and I would, I, I just, I, I just want to know what it was like working at Jordan because they always seemed a bit off the wall. They put a snake head on the car. They covered the car in fizzy yeah. drinks logos before it was cool. Um, so the obvious question to start with is, is Eddie Jordan actually that bonkers or is it all a really, really, really convincing act? 
there's a little bit of truth in both. Um, I mean, he's a little bit bonkers, um, but some of the, the some of the performance is is kind of laid on thick to entertain um, people. What I can tell you about Eddie is I first met him when I was 14 years of age when he was racing in Formula Atlantic in Ireland, and um, and so I've known him for you know 42 years one way or another. Um, that's too many he years. Is a bus- he's a businessman and he's a race fan. He was a pretty formidable racing driver in his own right. Uh, to work with him was, for me, inspiring. I I loved working with him most of the time. I mean, I'm going to say more than 90% of the time, I loved working with Eddie. He could be a tough boss. He could be a demanding boss. He could sometimes be an unreasonable boss, but that's only because he was very driven. And the thing that I will say about Eddie, which I think, Quite often, I get a little bit irritated when people slag him off. I think it's so easy to, you know, slag Eddie off at times because, yes, he is outspoken and he'll say daft things and people make fun of the fact that he wears colourful shirts and all the rest of it. But, you know, he he started a Formula One team with his own private funds, which he had generated through managing drivers and through bringing a team up through the lower formula. He ran that team for 15 years he sold that team and he emerged having made himself a huge fortune from Formula One. So he did something that Alan Prost couldn't do in terms of running a team. Tom Walkinshaw's team, you know, went bust. We can all list the teams that went bust. The, you know, the, the motorsport team graveyard is full of people yes. who wanted to run a team and didn't have the business acumen to do it. Eddie ran a very successful team. He won Grand Prix and he achieved more than most. And I, I, think you know he deserves a lot of credit for that i also think it's amazing that he i mean he could have literally just retired to a beach yes and had a wonderful life actually he decided to get back into the sport work in the media and actually do something that he had never done before i mean in his 60s you know he turned his attention to becoming a presenter on television and i know it did not come naturally to him he he struggled a lot at the beginning beginning i think with with how the whole thing had to work but you know he's he's carved out a niche for himself and you find as many people who love him as can't you know can't stand him but actually from a media point of view that's great because he's he's interesting i mean eddie when eddie says something there's you know half the people are cheering half the people are saying you know get off the tv so i can see chris putting his hand up so <laughs> I, I you know i think eddie for me, he was a fantastic guy to work with, uh, pretty inspirational. And, um, you know, I think the fact that people are still talking about him, he's he's got a very, very big birthday this month, a very big birthday this month. And, um, you know, I think when you look at what he's still doing at a time when a lot of people have their feet up, uh, retired, I think he's, a, he's amazing. Jake Humphrey always used to say when he was working at the BBC that 10 seconds before they went on air, EJ would take his earpiece out and lean to Jake and say, what are you going to ask me? Yeah. They would tell him the question. And then about five seconds before they go on air, he says, what am I going to say? Well, I, I, t- Chris, I can tell you, I, I was talking to EJ, I don't know, three or four years ago. And he said to me, he said, you know, I don't do any preparation. And I said, yeah, it's pretty obvious that you don't do any preparation. And he said, he said, they all do preparation. He said, I like to be spontaneous. He said, I say whatever comes into my mind. Um, you know, I'm not interested in hearing about what tires were being tested in practice or, you know, how many miles are on a, uh, a turbocharger on an engine. I just I just want to talk about whatever it is they want to bring up with me. And he's, you know, he's got this very relaxed style to it. I mean, the thing that surprises me when you tell me that story, Chris, is that Eddie was standing there 10 seconds before <laughs> they went live because I can tell you David Coulthard's stories about working with Eddie very much circulated around the fact that 10 seconds before they would go live, Eddie had not been seen for two hours <laughs> and then would come skidding to a halt like some cartoon character into frame and immediately start presenting, having had absolutely no idea what the topic uh, was going to be about. But... But I think that's why some of us actually, you know, love what Eddie brings to it. You know, it is it's very different. Um, no question about it. But um, he's a great, great character. 
Uh, you're an instant live stream favourite already. Brian says, what a class act Mr. Gallagher is. Uh, Benjamin Rooker, I love Eddie Jordan. Great character. Sam Watley, who's been slagging Eddie off? Christopher Fonseca, well, this is awkward. Uh, and a lot of people saying he is actually uh, hard to tell what age he is. But in the defence of anybody who has uh, occasionally been irritated by Eddie Jordan, uh, I'm, I'm just saying that that is part of his persona, is to be controversial, like where everybody else is towing the party line. He'll just come out with something just to test the water. But do you remember the interview he did with uh, Bernie Eccleston? He did a one-to-one interview with Bernie Eccleston, the likes of which no other broadcaster in Formula One could have done, where he was able to sit right beside Bernie, put his arm around him and say, come on, mate, you know, why don't you run F1 like this? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And I watched it and I thought, only Eddie could do that interview. I mean, he, he... and the other thing is when you see other drivers when sorry when you see yeah yeah when you see drivers like you know I know Martin Brundle or DC going on the grid to do the grid walkabout which they do a fantastic job yes. on the difference with Eddie is when he goes on the grid Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta Jones come over and find him you know he doesn't have to go and find them they come and find him when he goes on the grid he's got some bloke who he's given a pass to who turns out to be bono because you know he knows bono eddie knows the people at that kind of celebrity level and that's where a lot of the jordan marketing you know revolved around i mean it yes. actually reflected eddie's passion for music uh, for celebrity i mean he loved the celebrity life no problem with that uh, and he also ran a competitive team and and actually just to go back to another point that you made earlier you know all those things about uh you know, the buzzing hornets and putting the viper on the nose cone of the Jordan and all those amazing things. Of course, that wasn't Eddie who did that. But what was, was it was people that he worked with being able to bring them their bring their ideas to the table. And he would then sanction it. You know, he would agree to it. So, you know, in the case of in the case of buzzing hornets and um, in the case of the viper, etc., Obviously, that was our sponsor, which was a tobacco company. They had a big advertising agency in London. And that advertising agency brought us some wild ideas, which Ron Dennis would have said no to, but Eddie Jordan said yes to. So there there was where the whole thing worked incredibly well at Jordan because Eddie was a catalyst and people knew that they could bring their ideas. And even if it was a mad idea, quite often he would say yes to it. And what I was going to ask is, it was, you know, it's always a hard thing to bring a new Formula One uh, team into the sport. Uh, probably much harder now, but even back then in the 90s, to bring a new team in and instantly kind of not, you know, not winning races straight away, but being part of a, a competitive F1 package, is that yeah. a lot down to just his personality and his drive? Or was it just fundamentally something you could do more easily back back then? There was nothing easy about it because in relative terms, it was just as much money. I mean, we... We tried to do, I think, the first season in Formula One on six million pounds, which you know currently wouldn't keep Ferrari and Pasta. And um, the but six million pounds is a lot of money. I, I mean, if, if if I gave you six million quid, you'd you'd be very happy. I um, so six million quid was a lot of money to Eddie Jordan to the Jordan team. The trouble is, I think in the first year we spent ten. So we we, we tried to raise six. We spent ten. We ended up four million in debt or something of that. So something of that magnitude. And by the time Jordan got to its heyday, you know, by the time we were winning races at the end of the 90s, challenging for the championship, you know, we were generating $140, $150 million in sponsorship, which if you think that's 20 years ago and we were a privately owned team, you, you know, for a pr- completely privately owned team, it was a phenomenal amount of money for us to have to go out and race. And, there, race, and there's no doubt that Eddie's, Eddie, Eddie is a force of nature, um, I mean, I could, well, I could spend the whole podcast telling you stories about the way Eddie took the risk necessary to build that team. Okay. But I think, I, <laughs> I think that's the thing, Spanners, you know, the, the, the detail of what's involved in the case of Jordan for Eddie to create that team is that he personally put all his money on the table and he then took risk after risk, after risk, after calculated risk. I mean, he, you know, we when we built the first Jordan Formula One car, we did not have the money to build the second one. We couldn't have had a two car team. We all we had was the money to build the first car. Right. Uh, we had four people design it, which was Gary, An- you know, headed by Gary Anderson. Is this ninety one? Is it? Yeah, in that first ninety one season. season. And but the reason that Eddie built that car and spent all his money building the first car effectively was that he knew that by showing the sponsors a car 
instead of a PowerPoint presentation, sponsors were more likely to believe in him. So he could actually show them a car. And in October and November and December and January of that winter, Eddie was able to show everyone the first Jordan 191 and get them on board as sponsors. And, you know, this is high risk stuff. I mean, he he literally could have gone to the wall. He could have easily gone to the wall without the Jordan Formula One team ever having taken part in a race because he put absolutely everything on the line. And in my book, when someone puts everything on the line, you cannot then you know, begrudge the success that they have. And, and he, he worked bloody hard to make it work. How is this not a, a movie? This has got movie written all over it, you know, risking oh, I mean, timelines, it, budgets. The problem, with, the problem with a movie about Jordan is that we, you know, unlike the Williams movie or the McLaren movie, it would have to be probably X-rated. <laughs> um, it would certainly have to be an 18, I think, because then we could really tell the true stories about all the things that happened. And of course, then the language could also be appropriate uh, because um, yeah, the language could be a bit colorful, but you know, it was at some point you have to try and convince Ian Phillips to come on your podcast because Ian was the boss of the Leighton house March team who Eddie brought Uh, in as the commercial boss of Jordan. And it was, it was Ian Phillips who I very much work with. And of course he's a very uh, long old pal of Joe Savage as well. And I mean, Ian, Ian can tell you stories late into the night about some of the things that went on to make Jordan Grand Prix happy. I think Ian has a fantastic statistic, which I'm not even going to try and uh, remember. But I think there was one Grand Prix early in Jordan's history where Ian had, I think there were 392 decals on the Jordan car. Like, right. were, like I'm talking several hundred decals. I mean, the car, we had so many small sponsors. I think there were... <laughs> There were stickers under the stickers uh, in some cases. So, uh, I mean, Eddie and Ian and Gary Anderson, Trevor Foster, and you know, and people like myself, everyone worked incredibly hard to make that team happen. And uh, but Eddie was the one who inspired it all. You know what you need? You need a Wolf of Wall Street style film uh, <laughs> about Jordan. And I, I can Im- I can imagine it would actually be uh, very similar. Uh, the chat room is saying they've seen look- the BBC series McMafia. No, Chris, have you seen it? Oh, I have not, unfortunately, no. Okay, okay. So in McMafia, there's a, there's an actor who is the spitting image of Eddie. And uh, if they ever need to do a movie, he's the man. I mean, he's got the goatee off to perfection. All he needs to do is develop a nice South Dublin accent and he'll be away. Uh, Tenor says EJ has sold the rights to a Jordan movie multiple times, says Don Bird in the chat room. Uh, Lance Lassen says, being in America, I've never heard of Mark Gallagher before, but doesn't he seem to be the nicest guy ever? Thanks for keeping <laughs> us. Uh, thanks for keeping us company, wow. chat room. Uh, if Can you I would... tell you something about Eddie selling the movie several times? Oh, yes, please. Well, Eddie sells lots of things several times. I think there are currently, there must be at least four ex-Michael Schumacher Jordan 191s that he sold, even though Michael actually only raised one. I think every every Jordan 191 became sold as the ex-Michael Schumacher uh, car. So uh, Eddie's a good one at repackaging things and selling them. He learned that lesson from Bernie because, as you know, Bernie Eccleston sold Formula One about 63 times and still managed to run it until uh, January of last year. So uh, Eddie's uh, Eddie learned from the master. It's like Del Boy's statue, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. Um, I had a a question on the sort of marketing um, front of that, actually, because you mentioned all these kind of bonkers ideas that you had to try and draw in some sponsors and make the cars kind of look cool um, as well. I just wonder if you feel like there's an element of that missing in, in current Formula One. And actually, Don Byrne in the chat room is quite eager to know what some of the ideas EJ said no to must have been. <laughs> well, can I tell you the wind-up idea that he said no to? Oh, yes, please. Okay, so um, do, we have any, do we have any German uh, we listeners, do, we, viewers? We do, not as many as Dutch, but we definitely do have the odd German viewers. But don't worry, okay, they're, well, they're that, Amy or Bob. They might appreciate this little story then. So um, so Saatchi's, which were the advertising agency in London, they had the idea of doing a wind-up presentation to Eddie about the new livery um, whenever Damon Hill, and Heinz Harrell, uh, Damon Hill and Ralph Schumacher joined the team. So the presentation was basically, you're going to have Schumacher Jr. and Hill driving for the team. So you're going to have the German driver. You're going to have the British driver. Of course, there was the famous Schumacher-Hill rivalry. I'm still angry, Mark. It's too soon. 
so Saatchi said that a natural, a natural thing to do would be to paint Damon Hill's car to look like a Spitfire. Oh, no. Oh, God. And paint Ralph Schumacher's car to look like a Messerschmitt and have the RAF versus the Luftwaffe in Formula One. And Saatchi did this presentation all about how this would be epic and the media would love it and it would attract so much attention. And every time Damon would beat, beat Ralph, they could put a little German flag on Damon's car. And every time Ralph beat Damon, they could put a little British flag on Ralph's car and all of that. Anyway, everyone knew it was a wind-up presentation, except Eddie, obviously, who, as the meeting progressed, became more and more angry, trying to point out to people why this was just complete lunacy and could never possibly work. Tell me everybody and, else was sat nodding along and thinking it was a good idea. Everyone was nodding <sighs> along dead seriously. And then... And then finally, he detected a slight, just a slight beginning of a smile on someone's face <laughs> and then realized it was a wind-up. I can tell you that that artwork still exists. And um, uh, there's a good good old pal of mine in Dublin who has a nice copy of it. And um, someday it should be dragged down and posted. It's a good story. Um, but anyway, but anyway and, you know, there were lots of things that – we there were lots of initiatives that we brought to to Jordan, and do I think that some of that's missing today? You know, I to be honest with you, I, I'm very impressed with the way the teams present themselves. I actually think the liveries this year are stunning. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I mean, I look at the Toro Rosso and I think, what a fantastic looking car. I mean, the minorities were never anything to look like. The Toro Rosso, you know, it's a stunning looking car. Uh, I think all the teams do a fabulous job on presentation. Yes. I think there could be a little bit more creativity in the way they uh, the way they do things. Um, I'm probably going to upset absolutely everyone else uh, who who supports other teams other than Mercedes-Benz when I say that not only is Mercedes-Benz extremely good at building a world championship winning car, Mercedes-Benz team's communications department and the PR that they do yep. is, just, is just out of this world. I mean, the video that they showed uh, last week of James Allison telling oh. the difference between last year's Mercedes and this year's Mercedes – it was inspired, and it's a beautiful piece of, of PR. And I suppose my only regret is that uh, these days is that my career happened about 20 years too early because I would love, I would love Jordan to have been an F1. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Today, when we could have used social media, when we could have done oh, an awful yes. lot more stuff, yeah. we could have, we could have had so much, um, you know, today. And I think, uh, I th but and so I opportunities missed I, I i find it a little bit strange the way red bull has gone with their marketing because red bull racing when they came into formula one was kind of quite a v fun vibrant they team, the I think team yes. lost 
lost a little bit of that. I'm not really sure why. And I think if I was to have 10 minutes with Christian Horner, I would say that to him, you know. I've got a bit of a guess, and I think it's the same thing that happened to Lewis Hamilton. Because Lewis Hamilton came to the sport and he used to make jokes in front of camera. He used to quote, you know, yeah. obviously quoted Ali G uh, yeah. that, that one time said, is it because I is black? And that was a very yeah. popular quote at the time. And he got slammed down and slammed down. And, slammed. Yeah. and you saw what happened when Lewis Hamilton shared a video of him at home making a yeah. clumsy remark of his nephew. I think the same yeah. thing might have happened to Red Bull in the Vettel years, multi-21. And they kind of get this fortress mentality and they kind of hunker down and lose a little bit of that childlike exuberance that, say, the Renault Twitter account has or the Mercedes Twitter account has. Yeah, I, I think I think you're actually uh, spot on there. And I think, you know, it's been uh, disappointing. It's been disappointing to me to see the way Lewis was treated over that tweet at uh, Christmas time. Um, you know, I know Lewis can be someone that, pe- you know, people seem to either really love him or have very strong opinions against him because they don't they don't like his his personality or his off-track personality. Nobody knows Lewis Hamilton's personality apart from his immediate friends and family. And everything I hear about Lewis Hamilton, he's a fantastic guy to spend any time with and very professional uh, to work with. And I think, you know, with Red Bull Racing, I think you're right. I think they maybe got a little bit of a kicking in PR terms. You know, you mentioned uh, sort of multi-21, et cetera. Uh, I think the sort of Mark Webber Vettel thing was handled quite badly by Red Bull in terms of how they communicated that in the media. And, you know, I think in in, in simple terms, I think the Anglo-Saxon media were big fans of Weber and were yeah. not big fans of Vettel. No, that's fair. And I, think, that's fair. and I think that kind of influenced the way the world view of Red Bull racing developed because the simple fact is the Anglo-Saxon media dominate Formula One simply because English English language media worldwide tends to predominate in the sport. And, and I think yeah. that's, that's had an effect. But... Uh, I kind of wish Red Bull could just loosen their tie a little bit and uh, just maybe have a little bit, a little bit more fun um, yeah. uh, than than maybe is the and, and by fun I don't mean some of the PR stunts that they do because I I think the PR stunts that some of the PR stunts that Red Bull do you know, trying to get uh, Ricardo or Verstappen to eat as many donuts in thirty seconds <laughs> or, or, or doing sumo wrestling fat suits and things like that was good. Yeah, so I mean, so see, my, it's very interesting. See, my my question to you, Spanners, would be, you know, if Ayrton Senna was asked to do that, I know what the answer would be. It would be an incredibly <laughs> short answer, and the second yeah. word would be off, and right. he would not be doing it. And mm. the same with Alan Prost, the same with Nigel Mansell. And I, I kind of wonder if the people within the Red Bull marketing realize that, you know, at one end of the spectrum, there's just pulling silly stunts to get a few clicks. At the other end of the spectrum, there's doing nothing. In between, there's a happy balance to be achieved. And I, I would love to see Verstappen and, and, and uh, Ricardo being used to do really fun viral content. Yeah. But that, that, that actually boosted their credibility rather than undermined their credibility. Rather than just being clowns, you know, yeah, yeah actually I mean, yeah, just sharing know, just... a bit more of themselves. And I think, yeah. yeah, the media teams now, they they possibly tell the drivers to be very, you know, narrow. They have the people following them with the microphones. Whereas, as you alluded to, the press can kind of pick their favourites, the Anglo-Saxon press liked Mark Webber and I mean you work with Mark Webber now so you must have some insight at the time of Multi 21 one of the key features of that was Mark absolutely did not hide how he felt and he was fully heart on his sleeve very very passionate and I think now that would maybe be stamped on a little bit more people are a bit more savvy like you'd have people saying no Mark you can't slam your glass of water down and say exactly how yeah. you feel well you know Webb I, I think you know the great thing about Mark Webber is he you know, what you see is what you get. I mean, actually, in that respect, like Ricardo, it's exactly the same. And I think, uh, I think the reality is that um, you know Mark's personality shone through. I think it caused a few uncomfortable moments for Red Bull, uh, yeah. to put it mildly. Um, I mean, Adrian Newey talks about that uh, time in his uh, book "How to Make Make a Car," which is, I have to say, recommended reading. Fantastic book. Don't know if you've read it, but really excellent book. Um, by Adrian Newey. And, and, you know, he talks about the fact that Mark could be quite outspoken. He also talks about the fact that sometimes Mark Webber was patently wrong about the things that he said. And, you know, Adrian's very candid about the fact that Mark Webber got it wrong uh, a couple of times. But the reality is that passion and emotion came through very strongly. And it showed it showed actually how much Mark Webber really cared yes. about what he was doing yeah. and, and how much he really wanted to win and how much he wanted to beat Seb. With those uh, the the PR stunts um, that we we mentioned, 
would it be kind of fair to say that we live in such a statistically driven world now where just the only thing that matters is the number of clicks uh, that you're getting uh, and and that is you know in some way it's like it's it's, it's a value you know it's it's almost a, more precious than the monetary value we put on something in in a media sense it seems uh, these days you know, is that kind of like a fair comment on the approach that yeah, um, to- I mean I mean, Chris, you you know, you work in the media and you you know that it's a people are driven by numbers. They want to get as many viewers. They want to get as many hits. They want to get as many repeat visitors. They want to get people coming back. They want to build numbers. And of course, for teams, they want to show sponsors that they're getting, you know, click throughs and that, they, you know, that they're, they're achieving this audience, pen, this audience penetration, et cetera. But, you know, I think with a bit not just a bit of creativity, but I mean, again, I'm going to be a little bit repetitive and go back to what I mentioned about Mercedes-Benz. Mercedes-Benz sit down and really think about the video content that they're going to produce. And they put stuff out there that is very listenable, very watchable. They can have a sense of fun about things too. Um, You know, I think you look at Renault, uh, you've mentioned them already, you know, Renault have good banter on their social media feeds. And and I don't ever think that Renault comes across as being kind of stunt obsessed. They they come across as being, you know, pretty credible and authentic. And I, I think there's there's a really important point here around, you know, you can try to get clicks for click's sake. You know, you can you go out and buy a you can go out and buy a kitten and put it on your car and take a photograph and say, you know, and try and get the the um, you know the internet kitten combined with Formula One to get as many clicks as possible, so as many people say, "Oh, it's not cute." But Kittens the reality is, what's that got to do with Formula One? So you, you know, we just want to. I I think uh, you lose credibility over time if you're not really authentic about the messaging that you're putting out there. And I think Red Bull, uh, some of Red Bull racing stunts have, to me, kind of diminished the drivers a little bit in, in their in their standing. And it's the kind of thing that, as I say. Drivers in days gone by would have simply said no to. And I think that, you know, I look at someone like Lewis and I know that Lewis would would probably veto doing some of the things that that Red Bull might expect him to do. And and I think for good reason, I think he'd be right to. I can't see Daniel Ricciardo uh, vetoing a lot of those things. He seems like a very natural showman on his own social media feeds he's sitting there doing raps and stuff like that bad raps and he knows they're bad and uh, and he's quite happy to throw himself into it Max Verstappen yeah. it looks a little more forced I have to say yeah. but these are young you see, guys what, uh, the, you see yeah. you look you look at you look at Daniel I, what I would love to see in the off season is Aston Martin giving Daniel uh, a, a, one of the new vantages in in Australia in the outback and saying we're going to make the ultimate in-car mm. Aston Martin video with you driving and you, you can drive flat out and you know they get a I don't know they get a police car to chase him or something but he goes and he drives the thing at 180 miles an hour down down a road somewhere in Australia and has a load of fun doing it and somehow create content and fun and excitement and stuff that people will watch over and over and over again and I would rather make one film that got four million hits than make four million videos that get one hit you know what i mean yeah. i'd rather have a i'd rather have smaller content that that is so much more impactful um i mean i've watched the james allison video with mercedes-benz i think three times because i find it so interesting and i'm sure that's repeated by other people who who you know are serious about following formula one and want to learn something from the communications the teams are putting out i wonder if sometimes it's rather than you are a motivated, knowledgeable motorsport individual telling us what you'd like. Often these decisions are made by committee. There's a set of requirements. There's a, a panel that sits around and, and comes up with these ideas and they're under pressure to do more, not quality, to do more. Uh, I have to go to the chat room though because M. Hilmi Fauzi says, Mark Gallagher versus Chris Stevens' bookshelf arrangements battle is something <laughs> we want to know more about. Now, Chris, look in the background at Mr. Gallagher's books and look at your shocking show behind you yeah what's what's the 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 point you're trying to bring up all i'm saying is i know you're used to looking to me as a mentor in podcast land (laughs) but perhaps you could look a little further afield and look at his books now is it a surprise that mark gallagher's books are in such good order when he himself even though he recommended somebody else's book has a book out himself now mark you spend a lot of time in fact your main role is as a 
public speaker telling people yep. how to, in fact, do you know what? I'm not going to guess. I'm going to read your blurb. It says, in this riveting insider's account of over 30 <laughs> years in the Formula One industry, Mark Gallagher explains what it takes to succeed in a competitive business with high technology, high finance and immensely high stakes so why should people buy your book apart from the fact that you're clearly someone who knows about f1 well it will contribute to my retirement fund which i think is really really quite important <laughs> and we will like you deeply if you do buy it um it, there's also a halo effect it's that when you buy my book you also buy the forward for my book which was written by david coulthard so therefore not only will you contribute to my retirement fund but david coulthard will really like you for buying <laughs> uh the book as well i'll have seven um, the, the the book is um so the books the book was a hard one to write actually because it's primarily been written from the point of view of supporting my public speaking in terms of some messages for for business people so it's a lot of it is about what can you learn from formula 1 that's going to help someone run a business so it talks about how to build a great team talks about leadership talks about how to build a a culture of innovation it talks about how to you know how to build a strong and sustainable business of the kind that successful formula 1 teams are um but I also had to nod in the direction of some fans because I knew people who loved Formula One would also perhaps be interested in buying it. So I have intentionally the whole way through done quite a bit of storytelling about my experiences in Formula One, quite a few anecdotes. And there is actually a sort of a chapter which is literally just some sort of funny stories and insights from sort of my, the full-time roles that I had within the Formula One team. So uh, yeah, the book's called The Business of Winning. Um, David Coulthard, actually collaborated with me on elements of it we do a lot of work together uh in the corporate world and uh yeah it's been it's done very well it's actually done exactly what i required it to do the the corporate clients love it and a surprising number of fans have written to me to say they enjoy it too well look if the anecdotes you've given us here on miss apex podcast are anything to go by uh, i immediately want to go and order my copy of your book Uh, however for uh, a certain number of people they won't have to go out and buy your book so i understand you're going to give away something for our listeners yeah, so here's the book. Um, can you see that? I can. The Business of Winning. The Business of Winning. Here's the book. Um, my publisher now and again sends me a small sample of uh, the copies that I can use. Actually, I'm not supposed to give them away. I'm supposed to use them for promotional. We will. We will. Uh, we'll come to that. To we'll come to that. Book, but I'm going to give three away tonight. So there are three available to uh, listeners on the podcast. Um, and I'll actually sign them. Uh, to to the people personally. So it'll be signed to you. Or if you don't want it signed to you, you might want it to be signed to someone else so that you can give Ooh. it to them as a gift. I'm very happy to do it anyway. And and Spanners, I'm going to leave it up to you as to as to how we run this. But anyway, there's three copies of my book, The Business of Winning, available to people. Very happy to do that. And I will post them and I will absorb the cost for doing so. So, I mean, I'm, I'm investing now in your program to an extent that I wasn't anticipating. We couldn't ask for more. Um, I believe the way the kids in marketing do it. And don't worry, it's not me. We do have a, a social media person. We'll formulate a tweet that will promote both this episode and your book as well. And what right. we would ask is that... You go to at Missed Apex F1 and go to the pinned tweet if you're listening to this in the morning. The pinned tweet will have a link to the episode. It will have a link to how you buy Mark's book. All you have to do is follow us at Missed Apex F1 and retweet that. Once uh, we get to next week's episode, what we'll do is we'll use an, a random number generator to pick three lucky winners. And as long as you're following us and you've retweeted, we will get Mark to send that book to you. Uh, Chris, you know when I say all that stuff about the media, that's you, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I got okay, it. Good, I've already good, written good. it down. That okay, was good, an good, instruction. Good. Okay, good. Uh, so uh, what's really interesting as well is you're saying that there's a foreword by David Coulthard. Now, it's yep. fair to say, now, David has made a huge impact since leaving the sport as a driver. <laughs> I mean, he's easily one of the best presenters in F1 media. When he yep. goes to the podium to do the interviews, you know you're not going to cringe. You know it's going to be okay. When he's talking to the guys after qualifying on the track, you know it's going to be okay. I think him and Mark Webber as a uh, pit crew Fantastic. team on their Team pit- chiselled. Yeah, team chiseled when they do the you know there's certain people yeah. who can be a bit cringy and a bit you think oh why are they that's awkward but it doesn't seem to be awkward with those two they they play off each other really well so what's yeah. your relationship with david coulthard mbe and why is he writing your forward yeah so so david and i've known each other uh since he raced in 
Formula 3000 uh, because I was helping out a guy called Keith Wiggins at the time. He owned the Pacific Formula 3000 team, and we had David Coulthard and Gilles DeFerrin uh, driving for us. And um, so I've known David really for uh, a very long, long time, five years or so. And what we what we do now is whenever we go into corporate clients, I go in and talk about uh, sort of key businesses, business lessons they can learn from Formula One in terms of, you know, whatever the topic, whatever the business topic happens to be. Uh, and then David comes and joins me and he, he brings the driver's perspective. And I, I think you, you've summarized very nicely his strong point. I mean, he's, he's very authentic and he's very, he comes across quite so relaxed natural, sort of yeah. guy. Yeah. You know, you know, really, you know, from that point of view. And of course, I mean, he's incredibly self-deprecating. I mean, he, he will say he will readily admit he knows he wasn't the greatest driver of his era. He, yep. you know, he know he knows that Schumacher and Hakkinen were quicker than him and all of that kind of stuff. But I, I actually find myself reminding him, David, you won 13 Grand Prix. You won the British Grand Prix twice. You won the Monaco Grand Prix twice. I mean, 13 Grand Prix is a very nice tally. He finished in the top three in the world championship five times. So if that, to me, if that's an unsuccessful career, I'd like to have an unsuccessful career like that. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, so, you know, he he had a brilliant career in, in Formula One as a driver. I would say David Coulthard today has the best post-race Formula One career of anyone since Jackie Stewart. He has a formidable work ethic. He's an incredibly professional guy for uh, some of the sponsors to work with. I mean, you know that he still drives the Red Bull Racing uh, promotional cars uh, at times. You know, he has brand ambassadorships with a number of companies. He's a fantastic broadcaster on TV. I have to tell you, he loves every second of it. He just absolutely loves working in Formula One. And his work ethic is off the scale. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, there's no pretense about him. He just cracks on with the job. Uh, and, of course, he owns a production company uh, with Jake Humphrey for Channel 4, Whisper Films, yes. which does the Channel, the Channel 4 production. And they built that company from scratch. And, uh, you know, so there's there's an I have a phenomenal respect for him. And uh, I've enjoyed working with him very closely for the last six years. Yeah, he's just sort of quietly gone about the business of making himself just a huge player in Formula One. And it's it's a real shame Channel 4 are losing uh, their coverage and nothing against the Sky guys. But uh, that that team of Steve Jones, uh, Mark Webber, uh, David Coulthard, that's going to be a big miss come 2019. Well, it. You know, it, it is going to be a big miss. And I I mean, I, I don't know anything that's going on in the background, but you have to believe, you have to believe that uh, the Liberty people will recognize that David Coulthard, Mark Webber, uh, Steve Jones do a fantastic job in the broadcasting uh, of Formula One and Channel 4. And with all of the work that's going on within Liberty and within F1 at the moment to repackage the broadcasting landscape for formula one if you think yeah. about the streaming service that's been launched and that kind of thing i have to believe that dc is going to feature somewhere in formula one broadcasting very strongly be that in the uk be it internationally with the the, the feed because actually he's he is definitely a guy that that can add to formula one's coverage and i think one of the things that um i mean obviously we're based in all based in the UK. Um, something that we forget is that David Coulthard has a massive profile outside of the UK, particularly in countries like Germany. You know, when he drove for McLaren Mercedes for nine seasons, you know, his profile through Mercedes Benz across the whole of Europe yeah. was just it's just fantastic. And I I I travel with David now and again, and it is it's remarkable. You can walk walk with through an airport with David in Europe and. I mean, I, I've actually had the entire security team at a German airport stop searching everyone's bags because they wanted a group photograph with David Coulthard. Yeah, this is a it. guy. This is a guy who retired from Formula One driving yeah. ten years ago, and he still gets stopped in the street by people across Europe looking for his autograph. So his profile is fantastic, and I say his sort of professionalism. In presenting Formula One is second to none, so I think I'd be very surprised, uh, as planners, if we yeah. don't see DC in the future. Yeah, lots of love to how they've just 
changed kind of the stuffy shirt attitude of some of the broadcast companies. <laughs> I mean, who would have thought to hire Steve Jones to run your Formula One? And at first, I think a lot of people went, oh, no, that's not quite right. And then Steve Jones just set about making F1 a bit more Steve Jonesy. And he's just yeah, been but fantastic. You, but don't you agree? I mean, but I mean, I'm so pleased you said this because when, when, when I saw Steve come into Formula One, I thought to myself, well, you know, Channel 4 brought in a guy who's, who's clearly very popular in Channel 4. He knows nothing about Formula 1. <laughs> How's this going to work out? Uh, and then Steve Jones turns up and says, hello, my name's Steve Jones. I know nothing about Formula 1, but Let's actually, you know on. what? I'm a really good presenter, <laughs> yes. and he's done a fantastic job of presenting that show. And I think, you know, again, with absolutely with respect to the Sky team, the Channel 4 team, Ben Edwards' expertise as commentator, lead commentator, DC as the, the kind of co-commentator stroke pundit, um, and then Steve, and then Mark Weber, as you say, the addition of Mark into that team was was absolutely fantastic. And then, of course, I think Lee McKenzie and uh, Susie Wolf did a great job as well. So, you know, have got a fantastic lineup there. I, I just can't believe we have on this podcast somebody who was the boss of Cosworth, and we've been talking to him for 55 minutes, and I've not got to engines yet. People are desperately... Ask me an engine question. People are begging me to get you back on. But, I mean, just related to what you've been talking about as well, I mean, you, you also work with Jack Villeneuve. And, I yeah. mean, there's a guy who absolutely 100% doesn't seem to care what anyone thinks of him. He will give you his opinion 100% of the time. And it's it's incredible because if you want to generate a headline, you get Jack Villeneuve to comment on your yeah. story. And he's usually wrong. I mean, I mean, I mean, Ooh, it's, and it's fantastic. I mean, he's, and, and he doesn't care. I mean, if he was sitting here beside me, he'd say, you know, I'd say, I think, um, you know, I think Lewis Hamilton's going to win a fifth world championship this year. Jacques will say, absolutely no way. He's going to have a crap season and he's, he's probably retired from Formula One by the British Grand Prix. Jacques loves to say the thing that no one else is thinking of. And, um, Actually, I like him for it because he is contrary. I mean, he is different. He is, um, you know, some people can't stand the way he comes across. But I'll say, I'll say this again to you. You know, we were talking about EJ earlier, and people people can slag Eddie off and make fun of him and all that kind of stuff. And you have to remind people what Eddie has achieved in his career. You look at Jacques Villeneuve. He won the Champ Car Series. He won the Indy 500. He came into Formula One. He finished second in the World Championship at his first attempt. He won the Formula One World Championship at his second attempt. Sure, he had a crap time with BAR Honda and his career fizzled out and he completely admits the whole thing was a bit of a disaster at the end of the day. But that Villeneuve name, to me, is so resonant of Formula One. And we have to remember, this is a guy who ultimately achieved more in Formula One than his father achieved. His father died at the wheel of a Ferrari Formula One car. And, you know, the tragedy of the Villeneuve family and the fact that Jacques picked up the mantle, came into Formula One, won the world championship. I, I think Jacques is an inspirational guy to to talk to. And I've, I've, I have had conversations with Jacques that I would love to share with you because uh, at some point, because he's... He's he's got he's so misunderstood, I think, within Formula One circles, and he's actually got quite a lot to to that he can add. Oh man, ne- next time, and I'm just going to wildly time. optimistically assume there'll be a next time. Just get Jack and David to, to sit there in the background. Sure, S- sparkles. My my experience with Jack Villeneuve is is very limited. Uh, you know, it was down to. Come basically- on, tell me what happened. What happened? <laughs> well, it was down to basically the three races he did in Formula E. Oh, no. Uh, you know, oh, my goodness. Right. Were you there, no, Chris? Exactly. Were you? It, it was awful for him, you know, because I was yep. there preseason testing. Uh, and, uh, we, you know, you try and get that that image across of like, oh, you're an icon of the, the V10 heroic era of Formula One. You know, what on earth are you doing here? And he, he basically he didn't say anything like too outrageous. Right? It was quite a tame Jacques Villeneuve interview. But he basically just told me, forget all that. You know, this is everything I do is completely you know separate and, and individual. So there's no point thinking of, you know, what, what you've done in the past. So he turned up as a racer and yeah, not as a celebrity commenter. For, yeah, for three races <laughs> yeah, before he perfect. promptly retired. The, the thing is, I, I mean, the Formula E thing was a shame to see to see him come in and do that and kind of fizzled out again. And, uh, yeah. um, but I think with Jacques, it's interesting that you tell me that because I did an event with Jacques in Toronto about four years ago and I got him to come on stage and talk to the audience about what it was like to drive his father's Ferrari around Fiorano 
on the 25th anniversary of his father's death in uh, 2007. And um, you could have heard a, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. I mean, he described sitting in the Ferrari 312 and a mechanic coming over and handing him his father's gloves. Ferrari have Gilles Villeneuve's gloves and they handed them to Jacques and said, would you like to wear your father's gloves? And then he noticed that the steering wheel was quite worn. And he said, why have I got an old steering wheel on the car? And they said, well, actually, that's your dad's steering wheel. And, you know, when you get Jacques talking about that link, the Gilles Villeneuve, Jacques Villeneuve story, the Ferrari story, you know, the emotion of his family history. I mean, I don't care what Jacques said to you. The reality is he actually does understand that he represents quite an iconic name in the sport. And uh, you you just got to tease that out of him. And then then the floodgates open. I imagine he would feel quite emotive about it because Gilles was obviously a, a major icon of, of that era of, of Formula One, much in the same way that he is an icon of his era of, of Formula One. So it doesn't surprise me that he would get quite uh, emotional about that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So, Spanners, are you going to ask me a question about engines or are we just going to wrap up? Do you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to ask you a question about engines, Mark, because I have determined in my tiny mind that the best way to, in the future, one day get you back onto Mr. Apex podcast is to respect the pre-agreed time limits that we set. Always leave them wanting more. (laughs) Exactly. That's a great idea. And anyway, what we can do is we can seize the moment when the the three power units that everyone has for oh, this year have run out Yes, <laughs> by July and there are no engines left and Fernando Alonso is starting the Hungarian Grand Prix from Germany or something. And, um, and then I can come back on and we can talk about the debacle of the current engine regulation. I'm glad you said that because I have no optimism for this three engine rule. While everyone was complaining about grid girls and halos, I was thinking this three engine rule is actually something that's going to have a very big sporting effect. So it's not going to be how the car looks. It's not going to be the promotion beforehand. It's going to affect the championship in a big, big way. You're you're 100% right. It's going to have a profound effect on someone. And, um, you know, watching testing last week and seeing um, Fernando Alonso standing beside his blown up McLaren Renault and I was thinking wow you know there, there, there'll there be lots of stories that are going to run and run this year around the uh, engine side. Mark Gallagher you have been absolutely fantastic in the shed. Thank you very much. Where do you want to point people again to pick up a copy of The Business of Winning? Well it's very very simple actually if you go onto my website which is mark-gallagher.com that on the home page there's a link through to uh, buying the book and uh, that can be easier than that and you can get an ebook version or you can buy the the real thing of course it is also on amazon i was i was looking there earlier and i noticed you don't have an audiobook version yet mark no i'm trying to get my um publisher to do that because it wasn't for business books it wasn't something that they normally do they don't normally do an audiobook for the business books but they um they're coming around to the idea and actually just finally i had a remarkable thing happen to me last year where i had a a blind Formula One fan, someone he has no sight at all, and he's from he's from Holland. And how he follows Formula One is he manages to uh, listen to the Formula One commentary on the Formula One app, which of course is, yes. was provided by BBC Five Lives uh, commentary team. And he literally walked up to me in a restaurant in London and said, "You're Mark Gallagher from BBC F1 because I know your voice from listening to you on the app." And uh, and we had a fantastic conversation about. The fact that with his profound disability, he he just loves Formula One. So I um, I'm hoping to do an audiobook and uh, get that out there. Not just of course for for him, but for all the people who would love to have an audio version. It's not just people like the person you just mentioned. I think, uh, I mean, when you read from a page, that isn't the artist's thoughts, and I think listening to it is just another way to get the author's thoughts sure. into your mind. Uh, and I think no, people no are really coming into into audiobooks. Um, Mark, where can people follow you on Twitter? I know you spend a lot of time there. Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm at underscore Mark Gallagher. Very simple, and um, I love engaging with fans. It's uh, I have to say, I think it's great. And you can follow me at Spanners Ready, Chris. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at cstevens underscore journo. Uh, you can find my feature in Autosport magazine this week. Uh, What's the feature on? Uh, BT's uh, coverage of MotoGP for 2018, the new aspects of what they're uh, doing. So you can get find that in the What's On section did of you, the magazine. Did, did you get to interview Susie Perry? 
I did. Yes. You she did. Have you met her? Yeah, and James Tosland and uh, Hodgson and fantastic. You need, to get Su- you need to get Susie on uh, the podcast here. Well, 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 maybe you could be our in. No, 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 no. Don't <laughs> quote, don't mention my name. Oh, might, right. She might never actually do it. Uh, but anyway, very good. Uh, we will certainly make every effort to. Of course, if I you look want- forward to reading your feature, Chris. Oh, thank you. Of course, if you want to win a copy of Mark's book, go to the pinned tweet tomorrow morning after the show has been released. So that's Tuesday, the 13th of March. Make sure you go to at Missed Apex F1, follow Missed Apex and retweet that book. We will pick three winners at random. Until next time, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex with Mark Gallagher. You've heard him off the telly. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.